0: this morning to Revelation chapter 19. As I mentioned a week or two ago, my intention is to finish the book of Revelation, the book of 1 Corinthians, and the book of Acts, but I'm not going to alternate between them. I'm just going to finish out from where I left off in each of these books, and so we'll be in Revelation 19 this morning and Revelation 20 uh, next week until we finish the book of Revelation, then we'll move on to 1 Corinthians it's interesting as we look at the book of Revelation, we realize that what God has given us in this book is a picture book that is meant to communicate to us the big picture of what's going on in the world, that God is telling us what is happening. And it's very easy when uh, we look at life almost like we're peering through a keyhole, and we only see a very small uh, sliver of, of what's going on in the world, whether it's in our own life or in our own country. Uh, Very few of us are able to comprehend all that God's doing in the world and certainly all that he's doing in history. And yet the book of Revelation is meant to help us uh, get a view of history from the uh, 20,000-foot level to get an overview of what is truly happening uh, lest we become overwhelmed and discouraged by just seeing through the little keyhole that we presently see through. And so uh, one of the things that I want to just highlight at the very beginning is just this morning, I ran across a quote from Charles Spurgeon in which he said this, The preciousness of mercy is best known by those who discern the terror of justice. And you may have noticed in the reading this morning, By Daniel, the scripture that was chosen there in God's sovereignty mentions uh, the terrifying nature of the judgment of God. And that's actually what we see in Revelation chapter 19 as well. But we need to understand that one of the reasons why God has told us what He's told us in the book about His judgment is obviously in part to warn those who have not yet come to Him for mercy. And secondly, for those who have come to him for mercy, to see the preciousness of it, to see just how precious it is to be forgiven of our sins in light of what they truly deserve. And so if you will, uh, look at Revelation 19 with me this morning and we'll talk about um, at least some of what we see here and try to see how God wants to apply it to each of our lives. So Revelation 19, let me... Well, let me just back up just a second. Obviously, we're at a point in the book in Revelation where it's actually uh, talking about the return of Christ. And so the beginning of the book talks about the seven churches, which I believe um, is multifaceted in terms of what it intends to communicate. But it certainly intends to communicate that that Jesus is very much a shepherd over his church and he's a shepherd over his church throughout history. The second picture that we have is the picture of seven seals. And I believe that's a picture of the kinds of things we can expect throughout world history. So you've got the church history, you've got world history, and, and indeed the Lord Jesus is sovereign over world history as well. And then you have the picture of the seven trumpets, which I believe ultimately refers to God bringing judgment on the world in such a way that, it's, that he's warning the world Jesus is coming back, that things are beginning to ramp up in such a way that uh, God is announcing like a trumpet that the return of Christ is near. And as a result, you have a picture, I believe, of the rapture of the church. You have a picture of uh, the return of Christ, and then you have the picture of the new heavens and new earth. And so what we see here in chapter 19 follows... God's wrath that comes after, I believe, the church has been raptured. Judgment falls in accordance with that. You have the return of Christ who comes in judgment, and then you have the final judgment. And so that's where we are in the book of Revelation. We're at the end. The question is, you know, how does it all end? Well, this is uh, John telling us or God telling us through John what the end is going to look like. And so... Read with me Revelation 19, beginning in verse 1. It says, After these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, for smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in heaven, Come assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them. And the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is the word of God. It's an interesting time for us as a family. Um, Jonathan will be graduating in a couple weeks, and he's our youngest, and we celebrated Emily's birthday this week on Thursday and She just turned 26, and there's a reality in all of this that says it's kind of surreal. It's kind of surreal to think about our last child graduating, being an adult, and moving into a new season, and generally, even this week, talked about the fact uh, with Emily that when she was born, and this is probably common for many of you parents, she being our firstborn, uh, she's born born in the hospital we bring her home and we're sitting there on the bed thinking wow they really let us bring her home <laughs> and it's just you and me we got to take care of this little baby it was surreal it was a surreal thing to have our first child it's a surreal thing for our last child to be an adult when you when you read passages passages like this Um, you think about the fact, just try to put yourself in this point in time. Obviously, it's a picture of things that are going to happen, real events, but they're pictures of the reality of those events. Uh, The Lord Jesus isn't going to come back with fire shooting out of his eyes and things like that, but that picture is meant to say something about how he is going to return. And the idea is, It can be uh, surreal to even think that something like this is ever going to happen because we just go about our day and it just seems so routine. And yet, I can imagine that when it does happen, it will feel like, wow, this is surreal. This is really happening. And that's what this is meant to do for us. It's meant to tell us what is really going to happen. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't a myth. This isn't just a story to intrigue us. This is the truth that's meant to change us and prepare us for what is truly going to happen. And so uh, the importance of what is said at the very beginning, if you notice in the very first verses there, he talks about um, what I would call the revelation of justice in the first six verses, you have uh, an account of a multitude in heaven worshiping. And unless we really understand what this world truly is like, we might not really understand what they're really worshiping God over. You know, we we saying this is my father's world and it is so true. But it is also true that the Bible says that Satan is a small R ruler of this world, which means God and his sovereign rule over the world allows Satan much leeway. And there's a sense in which he has a domain and he is the ruler of this world. He is in charge of uh, the world system, so to speak. And therefore, there is all kinds of incredible evil that takes place. And some of us here could give profound testimony to the kinds of evil that you've experienced in your life. And there are plenty of people around the world today, plenty of Christians being martyred, uh, persecuted in ways that we can't even imagine here in our country yet that would testify to the evil that can be done um, man to man, so to speak. There there was a um, poem that was written back um, in 1785 by a man named Robert Burns. And in this poem, he mourns the fact of all the pain and suffering that there is in the world. And he talks about, uh, in the poem, this young man who meets this older man, and the older man is wondering why this young man is wandering around late at night. And the old man, man asks him the question um, basically, uh, Are you filled with cares and woes? Uh, too soon have you begun to wander forth with me to mourn the miseries of man? They go on to talk, and the old man says, You know, I've been here a long time on this earth. And I've seen yon weary winter sun twice 40 times return and every time has added proofs that man was made to mourn. Goes on from there and he talks about it's just part of nature that somehow the world must be designed to make people unhappy. And he goes on to talk about the fact that there's a lesson to be learned and that lesson is that man was made To mourn. And then he begins to get a little more specific about the kinds of reasons why men are made to mourn, as he says. And he says, Many and sharp the numerous ills inwoven with our frame. More pointed still we make ourselves regret, remorse, and shame. And man, whose heaven erected face the smiles of love adorn, man's inhumanity to man makes Countless thousands mourn. And that's where we get the phrase that we hear repeated often: "Man's inhumanity to man." How men can be so brutal to other men. And we can see it in the Holocaust. We can see it in wars. We can see it even in our day and time, where children in the womb and outside the womb are being mutilated in various ways. Man's inhumanity to man is everywhere across the globe in some very obvious ways, some in very subtle ways that we may not even remember. And so he goes on in this poem and he asks, why am I subject to his, speaking of God's cruelty or scorn, or why has man the will and power to make his fellow mourn? He Then he says something interesting. He says, well, uh, the good news is um, it's only a partial view to recognize the mourning of man. The good news is there's relief. But he says, this is the relief. The poor, oppressed, honest man had never sure been born had there not been some recompense to comfort those who mourn. Oh, death, the poor man's dearest friend. So he comes to the conclusion that the solution to the terrible situation of man who mourns because of man's inhumanity to man is just dying. It's just death. It's a very bleak picture. The Bible, Revelation 19, for one, says, no, the answer is not death. The answer is the justice of God. The answer to man's inhumanity to man is the justice of God. And that's why the only time that you'll find in the New Testament the word hallelujah as it's, as it's reflected in the Old Testament, the, uh, praise the Lord, is actually in this passage here in these six verses. Four times it says hallelujah, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And it's in the context, as he says in verse 2, because God's judgments are true and righteous. He has judged the great harlot. Who's the great harlot? The great harlot represents godless society. A godless society that produces man's inhumanity to man. You don't become more loving by becoming less godly. You become more unloving, the more ungodly you become as a person or as a society. That's just the way it goes. So what we see celebrated here is the justice of God. It's interesting, um, if you have watched the movie The Princess Bride, many of you have, um, there's a point in the story where the grandpa is reading to the grandson the story of the princess bride. And in the story of the princess bride, there's a villain. The villain is uh, Prince Humperdinck. And at some point, the grandson says, who gets Humperdinck? I don't understand. Who kills Prince Humperdinck? At the end, somebody's got to do it. Is it an ego? Who? Grandpa says, nobody. Nobody kills him. He lives. The grandson says, you mean he wins? Grandpa, why did you read me this thing for? What is that little boy expressing that all of us feel? We don't want evil to win. We don't want evil to live. We want evil to lose. We want evil to die. And for those who've experienced what they would consider true evil, then you really feel that way. Uh, Some of us may think that, well, we've, we've lived a pretty... Good life, and we haven't experienced some of the atrocities that some people have experienced. But the reality is, those who've experienced what you could call deep, radical inhumanity to man do feel this way. They do feel that something must be done about this. There must be justice. And so what we find here in these first six verses is the reality that God is going to do something about it. Um, In the Bible, it talks about the idea that man sees what happens in the world and assumes God must not care, or assumes that God must be in favor of it, or assumes there is no God because he doesn't show up and do anything about it. And yet the Bible tells us that in due time, God will show up, Jesus will return, and everything that's wrong will be made right. Everything that should happen to sinners who've committed inhumanity to man will happen. Except for those who've experienced the mercy of God. That is the gospel. And that's why you've got this multitude. And in Revelation 7, it talks about a multitude uh, of people, sinners saved by grace, too great to count. A multitude of people who praise God for his justice. Because they know that that evil in the world is a slap in the face of God, and it is a hindrance to people's true happiness. It's evil. It's wrong. There must be something done. And these people rejoice over that. Who will these people be? You and me. We will be part of this great multitude if we have turned from our sin and trusted in Jesus. That's my future and that's your future right there singing hallelujah to God for his justice. But at the same time, knowing that we've been spared that very justice, that we've been shown mercy. And that's why on the heels of that um, worship of God, in verses 7 through 10, we have this exhortation to rejoice. It says in verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So what's happening here? So what's happening with this multitude of saved people is there's both a rejoicing over the justice of God, the revelation of God's justice, but also the revelation of the joy that's been prepared for us from the foundation of, of the world and that joy is pictured here as a marriage feast the marriage feast of the lamb which means he says blessed are those who've been invited truly happy truly full of joy truly experiencing the greatest pleasures you could ever experience are those who've been invited and those who've been invited and have received that invitation by God's grace And he says, let us rejoice and be glad because the real party has started. That's a picture of a party. That's what a marriage feast is. It's a party. It's a picture of people rejoicing in the very presence of God. You may remember if you've seen the Lord of the Rings movies, after the the ring that rules all rings is destroyed in the fires of Mount Doom, you've got Frodo, the little hobbit who was used to destroy the ring, uh, awakening in this white bed, this very white setting. And you've got uh, Gandalf staying, uh, standing there as he awakens and they smile. And then Merry and Pippin, two other hobbits, run in and jump on the bed. And they're all excited and they're uh, rejoicing. And then the other uh fellowship of the ring members come in as well, and they're smiling and they're laughing and they're rejoicing at what? The fact that the ring which pictures evil has been destroyed and they've been rescued. They've survived that ordeal. And so the picture there is great a great, great rejoicing. And so this passage highlights the fact that we will be a part of that if indeed we worship the lamb. The lamb is a picture of Jesus. Jesus is, he said, he said the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So if we receive Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we will be a part of the marriage supper of the lamb. And we'll be eating a meal today and there will be some laughing and there will be some smiling and there will be some enjoyment of each other. But that, what happens today and what has happened in the past is nothing compared to what will happen. The joy there is like it says in 1 Corinthians, eye has not seen nor ear heard nor has it entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for us. And therefore, we get a taste, get a little glimpse, but it's all an imperfect tasting glimpse of what God has prepared to those who will receive his mercy. And that's the first point, is that the first part of this chapter is about those who actually have received the mercy that God extends to us through Jesus. That's the gospel. At the end of the book of Luke, Jesus is raised from the dead after he's died on the cross, and he says... That repentance for the forgiveness of sins is to be be proclaimed throughout the world. And we sang about that this morning as well. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed throughout the world. That's what mercy is, the forgiveness of sin. But the only people who receive mercy and the forgiveness of sin are those who don't want their sin anymore. It's not just those who want to be rescued from the penalty of it and the judgment of God, but who want to be rid of their sin. Because there are two things that have to happen in our repentance. I have to turn from my own self-righteousness. I have to turn from depending on my own goodness and trust in the righteousness and goodness of Christ. But I also have to turn from my love of sin and hatred of God to love of God and hatred of sin. That's what repentance means. That I, I have a different idea about whether or not I'm good enough to be accepted by God and I realize that Christ is my only hope to be accepted by God based on his righteousness, but I also have a change of mind about sin and God and I no longer see sin as my friend and God as my enemy, but I see sin as my enemy and God as my friend. And everyone who has that change of heart, receives mercy from God in Jesus and will enjoy all that is being pictured here in a very few words. Why is that? Because it cannot be communicated. It cannot be communicated. We could not even begin to understand what these blessings truly mean. And yet he gives us a little picture He paints for us the kind of thing that we most think about when we think about having a good time. We think about partying with friends and family that we love. We think about the joy of a meal. And that's what he pictures for us because that's as close as we can get to what he's really promising us here. And so the first part of the chapter is very much about the reality that we don't have to experience the latter part of the chapter Do you understand that? The first part of the chapter is meant to convey you and I, and those outside of this building don't don't have to experience the latter part of the chapter. But if we refuse mercy, then that is the future of those who refuse mercy. And it's meant to be a loving warning to those who haven't yet received the mercy of God in Jesus, but it's also meant to help us who have to appreciate the fact that, that he has shown us mercy and he has not given us what we deserve. That's what mercy is, not getting what we truly deserve. And so we find in verses 11 through 16 a picture of the return of Christ in an indeed picture form that begins to describe what it will look like if we reject mercy. When the Bible talks about the implications of the resurrection of Jesus It talks about the fact that Jesus is raised in order to be king and lord over everything. He's also raised to be the judge of all men. And he's raised to be a savior to all those who will humbly receive him. But all of those things are true and reflected in this passage. And so what we see, interestingly enough... We see in verse 11 where it says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Which is interesting when you think about the fact that Jesus was just referred to as the lamb in just the prior verses. Lamb is a very weak and gentle animal. That was in the history of Israel, used for sacrifice. and this portion of the chapter, we have Jesus pictured in a different way. He's pictured, even though it's not referenced here, but it's referenced earlier, he's pictured as the Lion of Judah. Because in Revelation 5, if you go back there, you see that the one who's able to take the scroll and open the scroll is the Lion of Judah who is pictured as a lamb who was slain. The lamb part speaks of his sacrifice for us. The lion part speaks of his readiness to judge his enemies as a righteous and just king. And he rides on a white horse, which speaks of the fact that he will be victorious in all that he's done. He does. He has been victorious on the cross. He will be victorious in judgment as well. And so we don't have time to look at all these various pieces. But let me just kind of summarize for you what these various things are meant to speak to us uh, about with regard to the Lord Jesus as he comes in judgment. First of all, it speaks of him coming on a white horse, which means Jesus will come to judge as one victorious over sin and death and hell and over all his enemies. He's spoken of being faithful and true, which means Jesus will come to judge us as one who judges justly according to the truth. We can trust him to do what is just and right. It says he judges and wages war. The Lamb of God who wages war is ironic in a sense but this means jesus will come to judge as one who judges all those who are at war with god what we may not realize is it says in romans 5 verse 1 that being justified by faith we have peace with god through jesus and faith in jesus we are no longer at war with god that's what that peace means and god is not at war with us But until we embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior, we are at war with God and therefore God is at war with us in some sense, even though he's still good to us in so many ways, even though he still calls us to repentance and shows us kindness in so many ways, technically speaking, we're at war according to to what the Bible says. And so that's what we have pictured here is that reality. It says his eyes are a flame of fire, which means Jesus will come to judge as one who knows all that is needed to know to judge perfectly and purely. He's not going to make any mistakes in judgment. It says on his head are many diadems, which means Jesus will come to judge with all the authority and the right to speak over every nation and every person. He will have the right to to judge you and me. He'll have the right to judge every person. He's earned that right so to speak as the God man. Goes on to say that a name is written on him that no one can know. And this means Jesus will come to judge without any limitations on his power or anyone controlling what he does. There was the idea in that time that if you knew someone's name, you could control them. And some refer to the story of Jacob in the Old Testament when he's wrestling the angel and says, what's your name? And they see that as an implication of, uh, I'll be better able to handle this situation if I know your name. And obviously the response is, why do you ask my name since it's wonderful? Meaning it's beyond what you could ever comprehend. And so the picture here is the fact that the glory of Jesus is such in its essence, that we cannot even comprehend it based on our finite minds. It talks about him being clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Those who are following him are dressed in white. He's dressed in a robe that looks bloody. That means Jesus will come to judge as the one who died to rescue sinners from the wrath of God, which he's coming to exercise, but also that he will judge those who trampled his blood under their feet. So, interesting, interesting passage in uh, Hebrews ten. That is very important in light of this context, because what it says is in Hebrews ten twenty nine. It says, "How much severe, severer punishment do you think he will deserve?" who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. What does it mean to trample underfoot the Son of God or to uh, regard as unclean the blood of the covenant or to insult the spirit of grace? It means to refuse mercy. It means to refuse the offer of mercy in Jesus. It's means to reject that there's any value in the blood of Christ. It's to trample under that blood and say, either it's not worthy of my trust, or I don't need it, I'm good on my own. I'm good enough by myself. And so the picture there is a picture of one who actually died so that people could be rescued from the very thing that he's about to do. Do we understand that? That he is... He died on the cross to rescue us from the very thing that he is about to do in this passage. And so the only reason that anyone experiences this is that they responsibly reject, refuse the mercy of God in Jesus. It goes on to say, his name is called the word of God, which means Jesus will come to judge as the one who is the fulfillment an embodiment of all that God requires, all God demands, all God proclaims. And so he comes to judge as someone who can say, I have fulfilled all that God requires and I'm judging you on the basis of that. Which includes the fact that God commanded all men to repent, to come to him for mercy and they refused, at least the ones that are involved in this part of it. It says that there are armies which are in heaven following him, which I believe are the redeemed, Uh, you and I. All those who have trusted Christ, Jesus will come to judge as the one who has rescued a multitude from that judgment, and that will share in his judgment and rule. It says that there's a sharp sword coming out of his mouth, which means Jesus will come to judge by speaking the truth and commanding the just consequence of the rejection of that truth. If you notice, there doesn't appear much of a a battle here. It's not like it took days and days for Christ to conquer. No, he comes back, he speaks the word, and people get what they deserve because that's what they've asked for. They've rejected mercy And so God says, well, the only alternative then is to get what you deserve because mercy is a rescue from what we deserve. And therefore, if you say, no, I don't want mercy, I refuse mercy, I don't believe mercy's in Jesus, then the only recourse is to receive that justice. And so God gives people, in a sense, what they ask for, which is justice. I demand justice, God. And God says, okay. If you don't want mercy, then I will give you what you really want, which is justice. And we... And our fallenness think justice means God has to accept me, God has to bless me, God has to overlook any mistakes I've made. And the reality is we just don't see our sin like we see it. goes on to say that he uh, addresses the issue of what our sins deserve by um, trampling the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, which means Jesus will come to judge as one who hates sin and those who unrepentantly love the darkness and executes a holy passion against sin and evil in a just and wholehearted way. One of the things we don't realize is that in order to be a truly loving person, you have to hate sin. If you don't hate sin, you will not be a loving person. Because sin is everything that brings unhappiness to people. And if we truly love people, we want them to be happy. And sin is that which brings unhappiness. The wages of sin is death. The final thing is, it says his name has a name on him written King of Kings and Lord of Lords, which means Jesus will come to judge as the ruler of the world in order to establish his kingdom on earth by eradicating evil from it in a just and perfect way. You could read the same kind of thing if you go back to Psalm 2. If you read Psalm 2, it talks about the fact that the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And then it says at the end, uh, take warning, O judges of the earth, do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. I've mentioned before there's a sermon by Jonathan Edwards called the excellency of Christ and it's preached based on Revelation 5 verses 5 and 6 where he uh, reminds us of the fact that Jesus is talked about as the lion from the tribe of Judah, and yet he's also pictured as a lamb standing as if slain. And Jonathan Edwards says, there's an admirable conjunction or meeting of diverse and paradoxical elements in the person of Jesus Christ. He says there's a wonderful combination of things. It's a wonderful combination of infinite mercy and infinite justice. Both of those things are important. We may not think that maybe the justice part is something we should be happy about, but if we truly understand the nature of the world and the nature of what's going on in the world, we can be truly thankful for both mercy and justice. The last section, let me move on to that with the time that we have. Interesting enough, is referred to as the Great Supper of God. You've got earlier a reference to the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Here you've got the opposite, the Great Supper of God. And the Great Supper of God is actually a picture of a judgment feast. Whereas the Marriage Feast of the Lamb is a picture of a salvation feast, a mercy feast, this is a picture of a judgment feast. And it's against, it says... Um, in verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Now think about that. It's a picture of the Antichrist and all those who follow the Antichrist assembled to make war on God, on Jesus. That would be like um, an ant hill and you accidentally stick your foot into the anthill, the ants start coming out, and they assemble to make war on you. What are the chances of them overtaking you? Well, I guess if you have some kind of allergy to ants or something, you might be in danger. Uh, God doesn't. All God does is lift his foot, and the ants are dead. The ants are gone. There's no real resistance. There's no real fight, and yet, sinful man can be like an ant trying to overthrow a 250-pound man, thinking, "I'm going to take you down. You're you're not going to not going to overcome me." There's a poem, another poem, um, by a man that I think I've referenced this before. A man named William Ernest Henley, who was an atheist. And who had tuberculosis that affected his bones and caused him to lose a leg. And he was a very bitter man. And he wrote a poem called um, Invictus, which means unconquered. You might remember uh, the poem says, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. You might imagine a little ant saying that as the boot of the 250-pound man falls down upon him, which is a horrible thing to think about. This person is expressing the fact that I'm unconquered, I'm unbowed, I'm unafraid, and yet he also highlights the fact that I'm unforgiven. Unforgiven. And I stand proudly. If there is a God... And I stand proudly before him. And unfortunately, the Bible says that those who are proud will be made low. It's those who humble themselves that will be exalted. Someone has commented on this poem and said, there's a gesture in our society called the middle finger. And someone has said this this poem is the middle finger to suffering and to God, if there is one. That's what we picture in the last part of this chapter is a middle finger to God, assembled at war against God. And that's the way we naturally are apart from grace. That is the true nature of our sin nature. And we have to understand that lest we not appreciate the mercy that we've been shown. Well, just got a few minutes left here. Let me wrap up by saying so very quickly, what are two things that we need to do in application. Well, for us as Christians, we should let this encourage us to speak good words. And the good words I'm talking about are the good words of the gospel. Uh, if we had time, we could read from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 21, where Paul talks about being an ambassador of Christ. And he says, All these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. So He says that all of us as Christians have been given a ministry, and that's the ministry of reconciliation, which means we have a message that you can be forgiven of your sins. You can find mercy. You can be at peace with God rather than at war with God. And then he says, We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now we might say, Now Paul, you're sounding like an Arminian when you start talking about begging people to be reconciled to God. He's not saying that God is um, a slave to our will and our decisions. What he's communicating is God has a heart to save sinners. And that heart to save sinners ought to come through. That we should should and can literally beg people, so to speak, to run from wrath and to receive mercy because that is the heart of God. He says that... Do, and Ezekiel, do I delight in the death of the wicked? No, I'd rather them turn and be forgiven. And that's what we're to communicate as well. Then lastly, good works, in the sense of, in order for me uh, to back up my good news of mercy and grace, I need to also extend that in terms of how I treat people. And that's why it says in Romans 12, uh, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never take your own revenge. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then he tells us how you you do that. How do you not take revenge? How do you not just treat people the way they treat you? How do you not return evil for evil? He says, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You believe Revelation 19. You believe that either that person is going to be shown mercy through Jesus and Jesus will bear the wrath that they deserve for what they've done to you. Or if they refuse mercy in Jesus, that Jesus will make sure that they receive what they deserve. It's not my place or your place to see that they receive what they deserve, so to speak. It's our place to preach mercy with our lips and with our lives. That's our role in light of what we see here and to show that forgiveness. It's interesting, Calvin at the end of his life uh, wrote his will and he said this at the end of it. Woe is me, I confess I have failed innumerable times to execute my office properly. And had not God of his boundless goodness assisted me, all that zeal had been fleeting and vain. As God is the Father of mercy, he will show himself such a father to me who acknowledge myself to be a miserable sinner. We consider Calvin and other great men, Uh, In history, great Christian men to be people that we can look up to and and people that we should emulate to some degree. But the greatest way in which we should emulate them is emulate their humility and their dependence upon the mercy of God alone in Jesus. That they did not look at their lives and say, well, God, based on all the good I've done in your name, you need to welcome me into heaven. You need to rescue me from the wrath to come. No, he said, I'm a miserable sinner no matter what, and I desperately need the mercy of God and Jesus. And that's my prayer for every one of us this morning, that that will be the reality in all of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a word of love because it tells us hard things when we need to hear hard things. It doesn't whitewash things. It doesn't change the narrative to make us feel good, to feel okay in our sin. But it tells us the truth that we might be rescued from our sin, that we might see Jesus as he truly is, as Lord and Savior, and that we might also see, to some degree, what we've been rescued from, and that we might love you more. For he who is forgiven much, loves much. And we want to see more and more how much we've been forgiven, what we've been rescued from, that we might love you more. I pray for those here this morning who haven't yet received and rested in and rejoiced in the mercy of God and Jesus that they would do so today and that you grant them the grace to do so even this very hour. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.